Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Each week, we select a recently published book and interview its author to learn more about how they became interested in their subject and learn insights about their work. Today, we are interviewing Dale Meharich about his book, Bringing Mulligan Home, The Other Side of the Good War. This book is something of a departure from our regular offerings. Normally, our authors are established academics specializing in the field of military history. Dale Meharich, however, is an award-winning journalist who, prior to bringing Mulligan home, has had only a limited exposure to the subject of the Pacific Theater in World War II. What he does bring, however, is a personal stake in the topic. His father, Steve Meharich, took part in the assaults on Guam and Okinawa as a member of the 6th Marine Division. As a child and then as a young man, Dale was both enthralled and frightened by his father's regular accounts of the war. Enthralled as a son learning more about his father's experiences in combat, frightened by the storm of emotions and anger that also accompanied his stories. Inspired to learn more about his father's service, Dale came to understand how post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury shaped his father's post-war life as well as that of the dozen other Marines whose interviews are included in the book. Bringing Mulligan Home is a book that frankly left me shaken. Though written in a journalistic style, Meharich reserves the bulk of the text for the personal testimony of his 12 interview subjects. The accounts they weave spare no word or emotion as they offer a harsh testimony of the power and violence of the Pacific War. The collected narratives present a visceral account of combat that rivals Eugene Sledge's classic with the old breed, while also bearing witness to John Dower's conclusions in his groundbreaking monograph, War Without Mercy. And while the book does occasionally lag, caught up in inconsistencies and misconclusions, in the larger perspective, these are all minor flaws. Bringing Mulligan home captures the ugly, nightmarish side of the Pacific War, never, however, at the expense of the humanity of his father or, for the most part, his compatriots. There is one exception, of course, but more on that in the interview. Hello again, this is Bob Wintermute with New Books in Military History. Uh, Today I'm in the Journalism Department at Columbia University, and I'm chatting with Dale Maharich about his new book, Bringing Mulligan Home, The Other Side of the Good War. Now, the buzz about this book since its release earlier this year is remarkable. I mean, it's been shortlisted as a main selection of the Military Book Club. It's been excerpted in Reader's Digest. Top pick for BBC Magazine and Amazon. It's been highlighted on C-SPAN. Now, these are just a few of the major accolades it's received. Normally, when I do intros for my interviews, I often say about how much I've enjoyed a book. But bringing Mulligan home really goes beyond anything I've read for new books to date. I would say it's equal in power and scope to both Eugene Sledge's classic memoir with the old breed and John Dower's groundbreaking study, War Without Mercy. 
While the stark testimony of 12 Marine veterans of the fighting on Guam and Okinawa is the centerpiece of the book, it is so much more than a collection of combat horror stories. The story about how the experience of combat lingers for decades for so many participants becomes a quest on the part of the veteran's son to understand the truth of his father's pain. And along the way, we are taken on a quest for both understanding and forgiveness, not only for the author, but in a very symbolic sense for many of the veterans, living and dead, on both sides of the Pacific War. Dale, left that very elaborate intro, <laughs> how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm, I, I'm, I'm still kind of absorbing what you said about me. Um, the, the, you know, I, didn't set, I, I didn't set out to write a book. Um, I set out to discover my father. I did my initial foray into looking into this after he died. I learned enough to know what happened to him a little bit in World War II, and I satisfied myself at that point. Right. My friends were saying, why don't you write about this? This isn't about that. This right. is about me. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if I would if at the beginning, if I would have think, if I thought about doing the book, I might have been too overwhelming. I may never have done it. Sure. Too, too, too intense, too personal. Well, I mean, that's one thing that, you know, strikes me about it. I mean, from the very beginning. I mean, you, you stayed up front, even in the book, that, you know, this is, this is your family. I mean, this is, this is confronting family memories and family experiences. It's very touchy. I mean, it's a hard thing to do for an author of any, any, any kind of medium. And, you know, you, then you go from there to the journey to the final trip to Okinawa, and there you have another ep- series of epiphanies. It, it makes this so different from those standard Greatest Generation tribute narratives. You know, you know what drove you to take that step? Well, I wanted to learn about the mysterious man in the picture of Mulligan. That was my initial quest. Uh, my dad had a picture of a f- him and a buddy from Guadalcanal. Uh, growing up, only once did he talk about the picture, but in the vaguest terms, and he, they said, they blame me, but I didn't kill him. I didn't kill him. And he died, and I didn't know who he was. Yeah. So I, that was a very simplistic quest. But as I dug in, I started finding these guys, and it was quite a quest. Uh, eventually, it became 12 years. I called. I put in the book hundreds of calls. It's countless thousands. I don't want to sound wow. hyperbolic. Uh, I got the muster rolls from the unit, yeah. and I wanted. To, okay, I decided I'm going to find every guy who's alive. I'm going to talk to him. Right. Who was in my dad's company? Right. And this is this is 60 years after the war. This is, it started with yeah. 60, it was 60 after. Ended up being by the end, you know, almost 70 after. Um, and so I I started talking to these guys, and I realized something. Near the end, they were opening up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I realized my dad, if he'd lived a little longer, he was on and he was on the road. To opening right. up. Something about getting near the end made these memories, uh, and it was okay to talk about yeah. this further. It's, I realized I couldn't have gotten this 20 years before. Right. These guys wouldn't have talked. Right. Um, some of the best interviews came from guys who were near death uh, in terms of they wanted to unload, they wanted to uh, understand what happened to them. Some of them, like Jim Lockridge, was extremely... Uh, Self-reflective, right? Uh, and so I, 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 I was immediately gr- uh, taken in by this, and then concurrent with that, I grew up. My father had a lot of Japanese items in a trunk in our attic. I used to sneak up there when I was a kid, sure, and look sure. at them. You know, any son yeah. would, you know, or all, you know. But I, I think any any male who has a father in the military understands what what my motive. And I a passport and all these objects, and even as a tiny boy, I realized how valuable and intense they were mm-hmm. you know kids will like destroy things 
That we didn't do that. Our right. us kids, it was like that was a sacred. This was almost like a sacred object. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, there was this passport. I wonder how my father killed this guy. Um, and it's only way you can get the passport, obviously. Yeah. I, I assumed. And there were other objects. And long story short, to complete the journey, I went to Okinawa and I found the families of these objects and repatriated them. And there were right. lots of surprises. We'll get into it maybe in a little right. bit. But it was a, it was a, it was a, uh, and I wanted to understand the Japanese perspective on the war. Right. And again, I grew up with, you know, the, the binary vision of the war. And it's more complicated than that. A lot of these Japanese guys don't want to be in the war anymore. My dad did. Sure. You know, I think we think uh, in terms of history as this monolithic enemy who hates us. And, and they're all the same, no matter what war or what era. And, and especially with Japan, though. Right. And I found guys who were just like my dad. The last thing on earth they wanted to do would be shooting at people and killing people. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, I humanized the, the, my father's demons in a lot of ways by going there. Well, that's part of, I guess, you know, the, the importance of confronting, you know, the past or confronting the demons in your past and trying to find peace. I wonder, you, know, you mentioned about how so many uh, veterans are now talking about the war. I wonder, though, if it's a sense of they're comfortable in talking with you as, A, an external person, not in their family, but also somebody who has that link to their other family, their, their wartime right. Family. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, unlike other journalistic projects where I've come in as the outsider, mm-hmm. uh, I was an insider in terms of my dad was there with them, right? And and I that knew, gave them trust and, and exactly. And I you know, and I explained my dad had issues, and I didn't understand early on. I just, one of my discoveries was my father had two extremely serious blast concussion injuries or more, but at least two, right? Which probably caused him to be a little crazy. Uh, according to the doctors I interviewed, his symptoms of rage were are, are common. TBI. Exactly. Related. Right. So uh, I, I didn't know any of this starting out. But, but these guys did relate to me in that, you know, I knew, they knew my father was troubled. Some of them knew they were troubled themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like they were helping me figure out my father. And they knew that they were doing that. Right. Uh, and so very intimate, more than any. I've done ten books. Nothing yeah. like this. This is this was right in the mirror. And yet, the, their spouses or their sons and daughters would come to you after and say they never talk about it with me. Yes. They can't talk about it with me. Joe Joe Ross Block. I'm not. I sent him a book, and I've heard. I've, I actually, I just I'm sending books to uh, uh, one of the guys in L.A. I just saw him two weeks ago when I was out in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So some of the guys have contacted me. We've talked more. Joe Ross Block, who. At that, last time I talked to him, still hadn't told his daughters about the war. Uh, he was very, uh, at first, hostile to me. Yeah. Uh, and then he opened up, and he wouldn't, but he would never meet with me. It was only a phone friendship. Many conversations over the years, hours, and sometimes we talk for two and three hours at a time. Sure. Confessional over the phone, almost like I'm grew up Catholic, you know, a little, little screen between me and the priest. Yeah. Uh, uh, we both had that screen. And, um, and, He's, he told me I was the first person he ever talked to anybody about the war with. So, of all the guys, all the 29 that I found, he's the most still um, um, guarded, guarded mm-hmm. coping with it. But on the phone, poured his soul out to me. Right. And he kept telling me, I don't know if I'm helping you. And I said, Joe, I said, you don't understand how much you're helping me. More than you think. I know my father. He was at the second blast concussion. He, mm-hmm. was, he carried Mr. Bulligan's body. 
uh, right. uh, from that, that blast on, on Okinawa. And so, um, you know, the power of that blast, what happened to Mr. Ross Block, my dad was right next to him. So, uh, you know, Joe doesn't still understand how much that has meant. It's as much a confessional for them. I mean, you're, you're offering them absolution in a way. In a weird way, for going to that Catholic thing that I, you know, I'm an ex-Catholic, but still it's kind of like, one friend who read the early manuscript of the book, an editor friend, said, he says, Dale, this is like a, this is like a group therapy session. Really? And I didn't think about it that way until that moment, but it really, yeah, I felt, and my journey of discovery, their journey of discovery over the years, mm-hmm. uh, especially some of the more reflective guys like Mr. Lockridge, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Fenton Grainert, right. um, they were like they were struggling to understand what the this poet. Meant. Um, oh, Mr. Lanciati. Yes, Joe Lanciati, the poet. Uh, well, Joe Joe had done his own journey. He was a he's a writer as well. And he, well, with Joe Lanciati. I mean, he's even though he's a writer and he's confronting these issues, you still get the sense that he's not done confronting no, these issues. No, Joe wrote a self-published book called The Timid Marine about the verboten subject cracking up in the battlefield. Yeah. Twenty-six thousand guys cracked up on Okinawa. No one talks, no about, one talks about it. Joe talked about it. Uh, the book is stunning. And this journey into his psyche of the, about why and how he cracked up. Mm-hmm. So he's reflected. But when Joe wouldn't meet with me either at first, and finally we met and we talked. Joe was, was rather uh, off-putting at first. He said, so you're going through a midlife crisis the very first time I talked to him. Trying to figure out, I said, yeah, I guess you got me on that. He said, well, read my book and maybe we'll talk. Uh, so, you know, uh, I read his book and then we finally connected. We talked, we met, and absolutely, Joe is, the demons are screaming at him. Right. He said, he said, I talked about seeing the brains of the Japanese soldier run over by a tran- tank. He's, I'll probably have that on my deathbed. You don't, you don't get over this stuff. No. That's the thing that, the myth of the World War II generations. They came back. They got over it. No, 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 no. They didn't get over it. Well, another another mythology, too, is the idea that the World War II veterans all came back to parades. And really, the only parades there were were for the big generals and for the guys who were here. The guys from Germany, the guys from the Pacific, they came back over years. Exactly. Their dad didn't come back in 1945. He came back, he came back in 46. And there was no parade for him. He comes home to the south side of Cleveland, this old Russian woman, Stadababa, we called them, uh, mm-hmm. Russian immigrants. She comes up to him and she spat at his feet. And she said, the good ones died over there. You know, we yeah. think about the, Viet- the Vietnam guys getting the myth of them being spat on. My dad was spat on, you know? He was drunk for four years, drunk out of his mind. One of the haunting things in my research is I dug into who died when because I was, I was going through the muster rolls. Sure, sure. A significant number died before 1950. Yes. When I dug in right. deeper, they drunk themselves to death. Cirrhosis, suicide, alcohol-related deaths. And, and then I, since the book has come out, I'm hearing from the, the sons and daughters. And last week I had an email from a woman whose father killed himself in 1961. He had screaming nightmares. He couldn't take it anymore, and he killed himself. Another woman wrote to me a few days later. It said her father, um, uh, uh, she found out after he died, had a lobotomy because he was afraid he was going to hurt his family. Voluntary lobotomy. Voluntary lobotomy. So (laughs) here I thought my dad and we had issues. It's a parade of horror. And actually, I'm hearing from some Vietnam guys who 
talking to the World War II guys as they got older, realized Vietnam and the Pacific battles were very similar. Yes. Yes. Did you do, you know, talk about method here. I mean, I do oral history. And before I go in and talk with, with veterans, I always, you know, try to refresh myself in some of these experiential accounts, the classic ones that have been published. I also do background research into the battle in question, or the campaigns in question. What kind of prep work did you do going into these? Wow. I tried to read as much as possible. But, you know, the literature on the Pacific. Very scant. Extremely skinny. I was shocked how skinny. Uh, somebody, I forget who, said there's only 15% of the material in the war went to the Pacific Theater. Right. And the proportion of literature is about the same. And so to, learn, to look at battle strategy and, and, and what was going on Nimitz. There's nothing critical of Nimitz out no, there. He needs a good biography, actually. You're right. There's a, if there's a written record. Now, MacArthur was, was crazy and all over the map, and he changed his positions on things. I mean, but he had many... His memoir was very interesting to me. So I, I drew on MacArthur's memoir. I drew on um, uh, uh, William Manchester's... Yeah, Goodbye, Darkness. You yeah. know, book with flaws, but one of the better books that I found that really got into some of the dark psychological stuff that happened to guys. Manchester reflecting on his own experience. Some later book, Dower's book was invaluable to right. me. Um, uh, then there was a book published, and I'm just forgetting the, 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 the Spies for Nimitz by, um, I'm forgetting the author's name now. And it was, mm-hmm. it was the only book that really looked at, and there was some critical study of the bad intelligence, right. which was stunningly horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote, I forget the author's name, in Spies for Nimitz, he wrote that, the, um, the Iwo Jima, they, they transferred out all the photo analysts just before Iwo Jima, and they didn't know how to read the, the aerials. So we go into Iwo Jima, and of course, yeah. everyone knows that Iwo Jima was just a nightmare. And then the same mistake was made again in Okinawa. Well, in Okinawa, too, you have the issue of the dual branch command as well, with the Army uh, and the Marines serving together. But more, more tellingly, the commander of the, of the expedition, Simon Bolivar Buckner, that's questions about his suitability for leadership. Oh, exactly, exactly. And, and Nimitz's battle plan and what they didn't know. And the under, you know, the Marines even then wanted a three to four to one ratio when they landed at an right. island. It wasn't even two to one. Right. Uh, and so on and on and on. You can look at the, you know, the, so I, I wanted to understand all of that. But the more I read, the more I studied, the less yes, I knew. knew. And I tried to get into West Point to <laughs> see how the battle is, 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 is taught there. And they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't talk to me. Interesting. One thing about this book is, it's not political. Right. I mean, how the battle is fought, we can debate. But politics, that, I never asked, I don't care. It wasn't my issue. Um, I just wanted to understand how and why decisions were made. Well, in a way, it's micro-history, you know, in the most personal sense, of course, because you're talking about your father's experiences and what, did, what the war did to your father. But then it goes by extension to what it did to each of the men that were with your father or knew your father. And then it grows into something different, which we'll come to in a bit when we've been talking about Kennedy and Okinawa. Um, but really, it is a micro-history. And yeah. perhaps on such a level that many historians, professional historians, or military professionals may steer, stay clear of or may not want to confront directly. Well, anytime you confront what battle does to human beings, uh, and I say human being because there's women in battle today. Yes. Uh, it's, 
it's dark. It's 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 you come back damaged. You are never and every guy who talked to her is honest with me said you you're not the same when you come home. Right. And and over and over, I mean, uh, uh, Tom Price, who I, I, I just saw a couple weeks ago, his son wanted to go to Iraq and volunteer after 9-11. And he says, don't go. This is not worth it. Right. And I found out after my... And that's not a political statement. That's mm. the statement of someone who's been there to telling his, his member of his family. Yes, exactly. And most of these guys are very conservative. These are not liberal guys. Right. Uh, so this is not a, it's not a liberal or conservative thing. This is a war thing. Right. And I don't think being against war is liberal or conservative. We shouldn't be. Uh, shouldn't be. Actually, some of the biggest hawks are my liberal friends. And, some of the, <laughs> and, some of the, and conversely, some of those who are most opposed to war are those who are trained and skilled and schooled in it. Precisely. That's why I say it's not a political book. So I, I needed to ground myself and then, and then get into these issues of, like, you know, what does war mean? And, and what does it do to a society? And, and you know... I, Somebody asked me, you know, are you anti-war, after uh, an interviewer, after I read mm-hmm. the book? And I said, well, I think it's apparent. And she said, no, I don't really, I don't really know from reading your book. Uh, well, that's interesting, too, because that raises another, another possible critique or criticism about what some label war pornography. You know, the creation of narratives or of images or of programming about military conflict that is gruesome, that is graphic, but the intention here is to glorify the experience. Yes. Well, Chris Hedges gets into that in his, into his book, of yes. War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Yeah. And I, I read him, of course, too, and I, years ago for another project. And I found his, his take fascinating. Mm-hmm. Every generation must learn the horrors of war. Yeah. Um, and realize that you shouldn't go. And I found out from the guy who bought my father's business, my father's long dead. I visited him in 2011, and he was training him. He told him, if there's a war, I'm driving my sons to Canada. My dad never would have told us that. No. And my dad was very conservative. Uh, well, your dad, the sense I have from reading the book and this passage about your father is, you know, his conservatism was also rooted in the idea, in the sense of citizen obligation. You know, he did it because he had to. And had it been your circumstance, which very closely was, uh-huh. yeah, he would have expected you to do the same. Yeah, yeah. But... But also, you have to understand, he got three draft notices, and he, 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 he was, when the cops came is when he, when he went. Okay, okay. You know, he, we'll he, scratch that. You know, yes, he's, he was, um, I mean, he went, uh, you know, and maybe in a different era, maybe he would have been like one of the Vietnam guys. Who, but in that era, you didn't yeah. do that. You didn't question. There's a, there's a later author, Christian Appy, who writes about the Vietnam War in his book, Working Class War describes in detail how the war was primarily fought by people of the, the working class, the rural and urban working class, regardless of race. And these are people who, for them, there was no op- no question. There was no choice. You did it because it's what you did. If you were called, you went. It, they, weren't picked, they weren't looking forward to war. In many cases, they didn't want to go. Right. But they went because they had to. Well, it was, the, it was, the, it was that World War II mentality of, you, you buck up and you do it, mm-hmm. and 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 I think a lot of them got over there. At least the ones I know, the Vietnam yeah. guys. And you know, as I say, though, I, I talked and I, I I've talked to Vietnam guys about this book and about World War Two. And the more I look into it, and it'd be, it'd be an interesting book, maybe into itself. The similar similarities in yeah. 
their the real their, the the end life of life attitudes towards of the World War II guys, with several exceptions of the guy in my in my book. There were a few, there a were few, a few, and I've heard from one of them who's he, he he's critical of my take on on Nimitz. And Nimitz can do no wrong, and and you know we agree to disagree. Sure. Um, uh, so not everyone is 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 uniform. There's no there's no monolith right. in these guys. In general, the majority were anti-war. In general, the majority advise their sons and grandsons don't go to any of these modern wars. It's right. not worth it. Right. And again, they're very conservative. Well, you know, you turn to the question of TBI, traumatic brain injury, and post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. I mean, obviously, this was both of these were conditions that your father was intimately acquainted with. But yet, he, pa- you know, he passed away long after these conditions were understood and accepted. But did he, he, he rejected it. Well, TBI, I didn't know about TBI until I got deep into this research. He knew about PTSD, and he was like, get over it. Ah, you get over it. I mean, I, many a time he would say that. These Vietnam guys, just get over it. Yeah. You know, move on. It was the past. Forget about it. We can argue about PTSD, but TBI... You, it's chemical. It's physical. Mm-hmm. TBI, the Dr. Smith at Penn mm-hmm. described to me, he said, it's like taking silly putty. Right. If you take silly putty and pull softly, that's your, your axons that connect your brain right. cells. You can have a little jiggling and mm-hmm. your brain's fine. Last concussion, if you pull it hard, it snaps in the middle. Yeah. And, and that's what happens to your axons. And they wither and atrophy. They never reconnect. Mm-hmm. And, and, it causes plaques in the brain. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it now in football yep. players and hockey players. You don't get over TBI. No, you don't. It's permanent. It is interesting because in the First World War, before the diagnosis of shell shock, psychological issues associated with, with war combat or shell shock were explained away as being the result of physiological damage. Right. And in 1917 through 1920, that diagnosis was rejected. It was thrown out in favor of, well, it's all shell shock. It's all emotional. Yes. And now we discover that now actually that earlier etiology of the condition is more true than we realized. Yeah. No, look, in PTSD, I learned, you know, and this is, it's complicated. We don't, what we don't know, what the scientists tell me what we don't know is stunning. And they, they admit they know less than they, than they, they want to know. They're on the journey. But PTSD and TBI go hand in hand. They do. And so, you know, you can have TBI, and if you have PTSD with it, they, exa- they exacerbate each other. Some of my father's behavior was PTSD, wasn't TBI. So you don't get over, you certainly don't get over TBI, and I frankly don't think you, PTSD is real, and you don't get over that either. Yeah. You've taken these horrible things. You cannot be not affected by it. Right. Um, you can be... Some people deal with maybe better than others, but the science isn't exact. But, oh, so my father, like we were, the one night I was, you know, he had a business in the basement, grinding industrial cutting tools. At the right. age of 12 and 13, I started working with him. And that one night, I write about it in the book, where he, he started screaming. And I'm not sure if I should use his language or... or Go ahead. It's a audience. He, he... Uh, he talking about the night that all these Marines were crying for their mothers around him. This is on the Orote Peninsula. I found out later uh, when I met the guys who were there, and he started screaming, shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. You don't have no fucking mother. Top of his lungs screaming as he's grinding. And I realized as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old boy, 
that he wasn't talking to me anymore. He was yeah. screaming what he was screaming that night. Yeah. He was reliving the moment. Yeah, that experience too, because you're not alone in the house when that's happening either. Your mother's upstairs. Well, your, but, your mother, your siblings are upstairs. Yeah, yeah. You guys are living around this. Exactly. It's, it's part of our existence. Uh, he would never talk about the war around them, though, mm-hmm. when they were in the room. Only me. Why you? Because I think I was curious and I listened. I learned never ask questions. He never said, don't ask questions. It was like instinctive. You don't ask questions. When he would talk, I would just listen rapidly. And I became, I think, the person he could talk to in those bits and pieces. Um, my brother wasn't interested. My brother wasn't interested in the business. My mother didn't want to hear about the war. Yeah. Uh, even if he wanted to talk about it, she didn't want to hear about it. How do you deal with, you know, it's the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. How do you deal with the, the media machine that is creating the greatest generation? Oh, You God. know, the TV shows, the movies. Anytime there was something on glorifying war, there'd be parade on the TV. He'd go up the plectic. Uh, you know, he didn't like memorials. He didn't like, he says, guys who wear their uniform, you know, he just, he was, he was abhorred by it. Yeah. He had a weird way. He was very modern that way in terms of, uh, and many, it's the, it's the epigraph to the book. In many different contexts, many times he said, there are no heroes. You just survive. Right. And to a degree, many of the guys I interviewed said pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so he didn't like glorification. He didn't like monuments. Hence, I don't like monuments. Yeah. I mean, I, William Manchester, I think, says it best in his book, uh, Goodbye Darkness. He said, monuments are always beautiful. They're always, you know, except for maybe the Korean War monument in Washington, which is yeah. haunting. If you go there at night on a rainy, snowy, sleety yeah, they, night. They come out of the woods. Oh, God, that's, you have nightmares. Yeah. Most memorials are beautiful, and I agree. It's just like, eh. Yeah. So, and this thing about heroes, we'd like, you know, it's modern, it's modern. Everyone's a hero. You know, uh, everyone in 9-11 was a hero. Everyone in World War II was a hero. No, no, everyone wasn't a hero. And, and so I think there's I a danger it's... in that kind of canonizing of, of our actions. War is war. Do you think it's an outgrowth of our, I don't know how to describe it, our entitlement society or a sense that we all feel that everybody should be recognized or everybody's contribution should be acknowledged even when there are no contributions. Right. Well, it's like kind of like Garrison Keillor's thing about where all the children are above average. Yeah. You know, every, everyone can't be above average and, and noble and heroic. Uh, I think a realistic view, and that's what I tried to take in the book, was a realistic view. Right. Yes, there were some things that were, were you could term heroic that were done. Um, mm-hmm. But was everyone a hero? No. Was the war... No war is noble, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, uh, getting back to what you were talking about a little earlier, you know, I, I, you know, I, there is a place for war. You know, look, if somebody lands, you know, on the Jersey Shore, I'll be out there with a rifle in 10 seconds. I mean, you know, I mean, there, there are places for it. I just think that... We shouldn't seek them out. Right. They should be... It should, war is a, I never forget, I interviewed a sheriff in Iowa... I lived in an Iowa town for a year for a different project. Mm-hmm. And I, went, I spoke to the JCs there. This is when, when operation, uh, the Iraq operation just started uh, after 9-11. And he, was, he told me, he said, I was the only one in that room with those JCs who was against Iraq. And he's a very conservative religious man. Right. And I asked, well, what, why? And he said, look, he says, war is essentially taking their children, pouring gas on them, and lighting a match. 
That's what war is. Right. He says, and, I, and there's a place for war, he said, but you have to be willing to do that because that's what it really is. Right. And so I thought about that. And I thought about that that guy's comments as I was doing this this book. Uh, you know, there's, even if you're fighting a war, you know, the way we fought against Japan, and Dower gets into yeah. this, yeah. you know, it was, it was, they were less than human we had a policy of pretty much taking no prisoners. You look at the numbers. I think it's like 380-some thousand Germans were uh, uh, incarcerated soldiers in the United States in World War II. Mm-hmm. Several hundred thousand. Yes. Dower points out there were just a little over 5,000 Japanese taken prisoners. Yeah. And the myth is they didn't surrender. Well, they found out from the guys on Guam, uh, Mr. Palmasani bayoneted. Uh, a Japanese soldier who asked him for a Lucky Strike cigarette. He said, you want a Lucky Strike? I'll give you one. He sticks a bay in it. guy had surrendered, and he, he said, you take any prisoners on Guam? He said, no. So the Japanese Bushido war code, you know, was against surrendering, but a lot of the guys wanted to live. They didn't care right. about the Bushido war code. And so, but when they realized if we surrender, we're going to die anyway, then it became, you know, the self-fulfilling prophecy of they won't surrender, we have to kill them all. Well, you know, Dower also makes a point in War Without Mercy that the nature of the war in the Pacific further brutalized the participants on both sides. And so you see this escalation of brutality that becomes almost inescapable. It's like a, a self-fulfilling cycle following a landing, the bitter resistance, the brutal resistance, and which becomes even more effective as the war goes on. As the Japanese give up the bayonet charges of Guam, and adopt the in-depth tunnel fighting of Okinawa produces even greater acts of savagery, and it, it just it feeds off itself. Exactly, it escalated, and and you know I wonder, you know, you know when I get into MacArthur saying go around the islands, mm-hmm. oh, is, oh, it's an island. Uh, Okinawa by uh, spring of forty-five was cut off by air and sea. I mean the Yamato, the ship Yamato, Yamato, excuse me. Uh, was steaming something didn't have a chance against our air. It was a suicide journey. Stupid. You know, and so they're cut off. Go around them. You know, take an island nearby, make an airfield. That wasn't the mentality. And I I would like to see the book on Nimitz's thought process. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, in Nimitz's case, too, I mean, he's responding to strategic directives that are given him. Exactly. As well. So he's, he's given the task of, uh, carrying out or completing the directives given him, which were, as we moved closer to the end of the war, bring what we had done to Germany against Japan. Yes. I.e., bring strategic bombing to bear and see if, what that will do. I didn't sleep while doing this book. Um, it's not only hearing the stories of these guys. These guys were within dozens of feet or less than my, to my father. And realizing my father had gone through this horror. And and I I always, you know, thought about he was so messed up I thought as a boy. But now as I'm doing the project I realize it's amazing he was as normal as he was yeah. given what he yeah. had happened to him. My dad was actually uh, a pretty amazing guy to be as normal as he was in the face of the traumatic brain injury and everything that he saw. So uh you know I I I had this, you know, I don't believe in the psychobabble term closure. That doesn't exist. But understanding of my father was just an amazing journey. And I think for a lot of the kids of the guys who were, like, involved, 
I want to ask about that. Yeah, for them yeah. too. Yeah, because Might. it's it's not just about the the PTSD. It's not just about the individual who's afflicted with it. It's also people that live around that. Yes, and experience that. And like Mr. Grainard's kids, uh, Jim in particular, and, and and Wesley, they 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 were wrapped. And, and, and Mr. Grainard's memory and descriptions got more vivid each visit. And I remember one time that was the last visit that Jim uh, uh, Fenton was talking about having nightmares about the war and thinking about the war, and, and it was cinematic, and it wasn't re- it wasn't false memory. Mm-hmm. He was telling me things other guys had told me. The same, so. It was clearly, he was sharpening as he got near the end of his life. He was probably about, the last time I saw him, he was about maybe eight, nine months before he died. Right. And so I, I kind of got worried. I went to Jim, the son. I said, Jim, I said, is this bad for me to keep talking? He says, no, 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 no. He says, this is the best thing yeah. for all of us. Yeah. Because they grew up with the same kind of deal I grew up with. Fenton was understanding himself. Uh, uh, the sons were understanding themselves. With Mr. Lockridge, mm-hmm. now, the chapter on Mr. Lockridge is pretty rough. It is. He talks about carving gold teeth out of cadavers, Japanese cadavers, glee- gleefully shooting Japanese soldiers in the stomach so they would die slower. But he's repentant. He, right. he, he basically was confessing to me, and the second visit in particular, he said, and that was a chicken shit thing to do. Yeah. You know, the guy's dead, let him be. Yeah. I mean, so he was analyzing his own life, and his context in it, I re- actually, you know, despite what that sounds like, I liked Jim mm-hmm. because he was he was able to to dissect himself and see himself from afar and say, "What the hell did I become?" Yeah, and and so anyway, he dies, and I put all that in there, and also about his, you know, sex with multiple women, you know, in very graphic language, uh, and I thought, oh my god, you know, Melanie, his daughter, Melody, his daughter, you know, like oh geez, you know, and. Uh, I talked to her on the phone uh, about a, two months ago, just when the book came out, mm-hmm. and she was just so happy with the chapter. She says, Dale, you helped my father get the poison out of the system. Yeah. And so instead of being like, a, you know, horrified by her father, it, it was like redemptive. It was very redemptive, all this work. Yeah. And so uh, getting to know the kids of the, of the, uh, of the, of these, of these guys was just as important as getting to know the guys. Yeah. Because war, affected all of our families. We grew up, we basically, World War continued in many of these households after, the aftermath of the war. Wars don't end when the shooting stops, as I write. You know, after your father's death, what gets us going, according to to your own words, you know, you're you're looking to identify your father, find out who the ghosts are. You center on Herman Mulligan as, as, as the chief ghost. But then you get sidetracked almost immediately in the assert when you talk to George Popovich. You want to describe that? Or can, can you comment on that? Well, Mulligan, I, I quickly learned uh, that my dad was out of the company after Sugarloaf Hill in Okinawa, blast concussion. Uh, a lot of the guys were taken out. Yeah. And, and I interviewed. And he's put back in, and they're east of Naha. And my dad's squad leader at this point. He's a VAR man. Right. And... I, I don't, nobody who was, this is the thing about blast concussion. Anybody who's any of these blast concussions, the memory is yeah. gone. So it's fragmented, it's pieces. Uh, but the mosaic that I put together is Mulligan throws a grenade into this burial tomb. Mm-hmm. It's full of about estimated 2,000 pounds of Japanese munitions. Mm. And it went up like a volcano, Jim Lockridge yeah. told me. And 
a piece of the roof comes down on Mulligan. Now, Mulligan was his, his, his body's listed as not recovered. Joe Rosblock carried Mulligan's body that day. Right. What I think happened, my dad, my dad felt guilty. One of two things happened. My dad was squad leader, and he ordered Mulligan to throw the grenade into the tomb. Right. Uh, my dad always said, I fucked up, but they made me sergeant anyway. Yeah. And there were orders, don't mess with those tombs. Right. But in battle, as you know, well, orders they're, don't... They're, they're, you know, potentially a great site for an ambush. They can make a good pillbox. Oh, there was machine yeah. gunners yeah. on that ridge. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was, there, was, there was a threat, and orders don't always get around. So yeah. every guy I talked to said, nobody blamed your dad. Mm-hmm. But so he ordered Mulligan to throw the grenade and or he took off his dog tags to stop the bleeding. I found out that Mulligan was a hemophiliac oh. from some of the guys. Oh. So um, Mulligan's carted off in his body. He's buried, I believe, is unknown at the punch bowl. Right. So I, I answered that question pretty fast. Didn't find his relatives. I sent hundreds of letters to... Um, Kinfolk with the same name, well, people who could be kinfolk with the same name in the Carolinas region. Mm-hmm. I made hundreds of phone calls. I visited. It's a very common name. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mulligan, and then his, his, his mother was, uh, 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 the, the sister married into a Patterson, which is like Smith and this Yeah. You know, and so I never got DNA. I actually never got Mulligan's, but, you know, I'm hoping a relative reads the book. And we can get DNA, and the uh, military exhumes all the time. Yeah. Put a name on this grave. I, that's not over. I, I want to do that. Yeah. But this, as you say, it became a bigger quest. What did this war mean to my family, me, mm-hmm. my family, the men's families, and then a larger question to our country? Mm-hmm. You know, part of the, I mean, the 50s and 60s are a reaction to all of that stuff, I feel. Yeah. Uh, and so, and in a way, so too were the eighties and the nineties, where we try to revalidate yes. the war years too. Exactly. We, you know, yeah, exactly. So we're living, you know, we've been living in in context with this with this this war. Uh, you know, my dad was messed up. No one acknowledged it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, just acknowledging the fact that these guys had TBI, PTSD, and issues, I think, is real important for our culture. Right. But what I'm thinking too is, I mean, you know, the, the context of the quest becomes almost a search for justice. Yes. Well, there was the case of Mr. Kennedy. I grew up, my dad would grind in the basement, and I would hear about this guy, Kennedy. Park Avenue, New York City, money. But they raped a woman on Okinawa. And my dad, my dad was always, um, I wouldn't call him a feminist, but. He was, my sister was going to go to college, and his brothers and family, women don't go to college, they're going to get married. Don't. My right. dad, he would always get upset when he told me when like, a woman would come into the shop, he worked at Cleveland Twist Drill, and these guys would whistle. He, he was a very pro woman guy. Right. So he was very old school in that regard. In a way, yeah. yeah. Very, very gentlemanly, genteel kind of. Yeah. But you don't, you don't do that to women. Right. And, and so he was a, abhorred the rape, but he, he worshiped the money. And. He wanted to have position, and to him, Kennedy was making it in America, even though he was an asshole for raping right. the woman. So it was, a, it was a love hate with this guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can also see, too, like an ironic like detachment where here's this guy with all the money, this guy had everything, and look what he is. You know, that's what he is. And almost yeah. like a disdain for him. Yeah, it's, it's a weird... And then I started meeting the guys, and hearing everyone who was in that company knew Kennedy raped that woman. 
I heard it over and over and over. And so I go up to see Fenton Grainard, and Grainard in great detail tells about the rape, but also yeah. it was a rape. He wasn't there, but the guys went up. A guy named Regliario. There's a bunch of guys, yeah. but Kennedy, Kennedy was sadistic. He had a 38 pistol. The woman took it and tried to kill herself, but he'd unloaded it. I mean, he was a psychopath. So within a week of the rape, Kennedy, Grainert, this guy, Car- not Carpenter, uh, and I forget the guy's name. He's in his 40s. He's an old man. Right. You know, these guys in their 20s. Although Fenton Grainert had a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter at home, even though he was like 22 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, they're guarding this relay station on North Okinawa, and they had orders. Anything that moves, shoot, and then it doesn't stop. So they order a halt. There's, there, the movement continues. They open up with the, with the light. I think it was the 30 caliber. Uh, and suddenly they hear baby cry. They realize these weren't soldiers. Nice. So the older guy stayed. Greenert runs down, and there's a man and a woman with a baby strapped to each of their backs. Man and woman are dead. Babies are alive. One baby's arm was dangling by a thread. And Kennedy materializes next to him. And Craner says, we've got to take these little fellows up to the, to the corpsman and get, get, them, get them help. And Kennedy says, the hell we will. We'll be fighting their children. You know, you know we're not going to, you know, we've got to shoot them. Who's going to shoot these babies? I will. No, you won't. And he pulls the gun and threatens Fenton. I'll shoot. If you try to stop me, I'll shoot you. And he shoots both babies. And Fenton Grainard, 65 years later, was crying like a baby yeah. as he told this story. So, you know, this Kennedy guy was this, and I hadn't tried to look for him. And it was like a black hole I wrote in the quest. It was like, he was such a dark-sounding character. Well, I started calling around. Long story short, I called this Kennedy I said, is this Mr. Kennedy who was in Okinawa? Yes. I said my name, Dale Maharaj. He said, Steve, he was 5'9". Starts going off about my dad. Yeah. And suddenly, who is this? How'd you get my number? You know, blah, blah. I never answered his phone, had bad legs. You know, I don't remember anything. So mm-hmm. I said, I said, well, you know, I'm trying to find out about Mr. Mulligan, what happened. I don't remember anybody. Well, let me send you the picture. You know, Cosby posted. You send it, but I don't, you know, I don't know. So he basically hanged up. It was a very short call. Yeah. I sent the picture. Two weeks later, I call, and it was like, Dale, buddy, come on up. Come on, why you come visit? And what I said in the letter was I talked to 29 guys, 20-some guys from the company, and didn't say anything about, of course, about the rape or the right. baby killing. But he knew that by my talking to that many guys, I knew about the rape. He figured the bus was coming down. So we buried my mom and my dad at Arlington, I drove into the mountains, this very remote gravel road. Uh, he lives in a cabin way back in the woods. And I, this is like, I've been with journalists for 30-some years. I've covered a couple of wars. This is the hairiest interview. So, in route, I call Fenton Grainard. Right. And they said, you're not going to believe who I'm going to go see. And I said, Kennedy, he was, he got really scared. He says, take a gun, take a gun. He was terrified of Kennedy still. So there's a shock in the woods, and I walk up, and there's a screen door, and I knock, and his voice says, get in here. And I open the door, and there's a bed, tight-sheeted bed with a revolver holster, empty of the revolver, teddy bears weirdly on the walls, very incongruous. I walk down this long hall, and there's this man, looks like Elmer Fudd, 
sitting in a chair with both hands under a blanket over him. And on the couch next to him is a pistol holster with the pistol missing. And I, showing no fear, even though I had fear, I said, Mr. Kennedy, it's great to meet you. I've heard about you since I was about eight years old. And one hand emerged and we shook hands. And in three hours, the left, the other hand never came out. And he talked about, right here is Colt Python. Yeah. You know? And uh, it was a very tenuous interview. Um, about an hour in, I said, we were talking about, my, they, made, they made hooch on Guadalcanal. Yeah. My dad stole the raisins. So we talked about, you know, the, 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 the raisin jack, the, the whiskey, they, the booze they made. The, the, and, and, oh, something else. And his, the, the temperature went down in the room. And he was, well, I told my students, don't shut up. So I said, something happened in Okinawa. Yeah, with two women. I said, that's what I heard. And I just, nothing. We yeah. stare, staring contest. And I said, did, did, he said, did something bad to him. I said, that's what I hear. And then two guys, two guys. I said, that's what I hear. I said, you know who they were? And he said, nah. I mean, he wasn't going to go. And the long story short is Kennedy, pathetic. I wish my dad could have seen him. Absolutely pathetic. He was a psychopath. He... Maybe he's agonizing and I don't know it. Maybe he sleeps well at night. He says, hey, he goes to bed at 5 a.m. He never goes to bed at night. And part of me is I wish he would just opened up. And part of me, I didn't expect any more out of him. It's interesting for me as an old historian reading that and then yeah. having you tell the account. Uh, and that's why I was, I was prompting you to tell was as an oral historian, you know, we, we come across not narratives like that, but it's always when there's the scenarios perhaps that your subject doesn't want to go to. Right. And the dilemma is, do you go down that road? Or do you allow them that privacy or an anonymity? I'm a relatively brave reporter person. Well, that may be the distinction because you also have the journalist background rather than being a historian. Of exactly. But I was mindful of those, those empty... Uh, weapon holster. Oh, I bet you were. <laughs> and I wanted to say, look, Mr. Kennedy, I know you raped that woman. Don't bullshit me. I'm not that brave. Yeah. You know, if you were in a public place, I might have. But if he thought the bust was coming down, what he doesn't understand is, at that point, there was a statute of limitations on rape. Now, the baby killing is a different issue. Yeah. But he couldn't be prosecuted for it. Not bad. But I, I didn't push it. No, well, they, but the, but the, the babies, the you could argue. You know, uh, 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 Carl Brothers told me, he said, we weren't even able to get treated. Who would have taken care of those babies? Yeah. Let's take the babies out of the equation. The rape was heinous. Right. you got to wonder, in, in this case, was it did the war trigger that in Kennedy, or did he have it in him to begin with? I wonder about that. And, you know, he's from privilege. He didn't have to go to war. He volunteered. He went down to Times Square and volunteered. Well, a lot of guys did. Said, different war. But, yeah. but he told me, I wanted the bayonet jab. And that tells me, and I think every war attracts psychopaths. And I've talked to... Well, there's a, you know, in, in defense of that, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of narratives, a lot of interviews, a lot of, a lot of testimony of people saying, in the midst of, of the Pearl Harbor fervor, or the, the, the rush to war. And of course, as Dower says, Japanese have been... You know, even before the war, have been the subjects and the objects of racism and yes. stereotyping. Yes. So it was only you know, natural, well, I would call it natural, but expected that people would voice those kinds of attitudes. But it was interesting. I got a letter from an uh, uh, army doctor 
who was in Afghanistan. And he read the book. Right. I read it twice, Dale. I recommended it to my patients. Right. Recommended it to my colleagues. We had this email exchange. You know, 1,500 were emails back and forth. Some really intense conversations via email. He's, 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 I don't want to say where he's based now because he can get the trouble. Relevant. Yeah, relevant. But yeah. he said, Dale, we have psychopaths here too. Oh, yes. So I think every war, oh, yes. you know, we don't know who they are, but every war attracts a certain type of person who they have license to do whatever they want. And I think, I think, I think I'm on a shrink. I can't get inside Kennedy's head. I think he, I think he was one of those guys. He, he really enjoyed it. Yeah, I've got to ask, you know, being so close to this, father's story, it's your story. But you're also a professional journalist. Did you feel at any time that there were any special challenges or perhaps conflicts in working on this project or bringing it to where it went? They were very internal. Um, I think if my father could materialize in this room, he would say, oh, just forget, you know, forget, leave it alone. Secretly, he'd be going right on. Because... My father was powerless against a lot of crap. Yeah. And I was able, in the book, I was able to look at a lot of the crap that was arrayed against him. And I think he would be proud that I was doing that. Mm-hmm. My mother is only in her grave. She, this is family secrets. You don't talk about this. Yeah. She would not be happy. So my demons, I'm sorry, my demons were not, um, were not uh, with the journalism or, you know, it was it was internal. As I said, I was worried about talking to these guys and triggering memories, but they themselves and their children said, "No, no, that's not an issue." Yeah. Don't. I, I I checked myself on that. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be like with Mister Rosbach. Initially, he said, yeah. "Don't use my name." And I said, yeah. "Fine, I'll change your name. I have no issue yeah. with that." And then he brought it up. He said, "You know, these kids today have to know what it's really like." Use my name and. Are you sure, Mr. Rossblock? I mean, I was always very conscious of not... Uh, well, you don't want to betray the memory of these guys either. No, no. They experience. And I, you know, I wanted them, and some of them were more open than others, but Mr. Lockridge said, he said, I'm glad somebody's putting it down like it was. He, I didn't have to ask, he was deaf. I couldn't ask many questions. Yeah. When you read the book and you see that, he's a natural storyteller. Mm-hmm. It poured out of him. He knew this is for the record. Let's get it down. Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, I wanted to honor that. And, yeah. and, you know, the last thing Lockridge wanted would be to whitewash it. Right. He would be pissed off at me if I'd whitewashed it. So it's all there. And his daughter, obviously, is of the same blood. She, she feels the same way. Um, so I didn't have issues with that. I mean, I right. dealt with it as I went. It was more personal. You know, I read the, the Wall Street Journal review that, um, Rather critical. Um, I'm not going to ask you to rebut it or you know to deal anything with it, but I, it does raise a question. I think that that is a fair question about issues of moral proportionality, about how we contextualize the savagery of the war from the American perspective, and not acknowledge or not deal with. The very real question of Japanese atrocity, Japanese culpability. Now, I'm not. I'm not asking you to, to to rebut that, but I mean, is or, or or to to 
defend yourself. But um, you know, is there is there something that we should be aware of as we strive to understand the war that you know, we don't get from standard narratives? Well, standard narrative is Japan attacked us out of the blue. We we're minding our own business, and they just attacked us. Mm-hmm. And oh, you know, we have to we have to go fight them. Mm-hmm. If you look at history. Uh, which I'll get into in a minute, but I was good friends with Iris Chang, who did the rape in Nanking. Right. Uh, as she was doing the research, her grandparents were in Nanking. And yeah. She was doing the research for that book. Traumatic. Right. And the Japanese were brutal. Yeah, and on, on a side note, too, she caught great deal of criticism for going too far, some said. Exactly. The, the Japanese nationalists do not like her book. So, so Jap- the Japanese were not, they were, they were, wherever they invaded, they were terrible. Uh, 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 conquerors. Uh, so, but having said that, look at the history. Why did Japan attack us? It goes back to 1853 when Commodore Perry blasted his way into Tokyo Harbor and said, You will trade with us. Mm-hmm. The Japanese resented it. He went to Okinawa and pillaged, basically. Right. Uh, you will trade with us. And they were resentful. Resentful, but also over time, I'm not going to say grateful, but accepting of it, because it brings them into the 20th century. Well, what happened was they militarized. Right. They didn't want that to happen again. So, in a large way, mm-hmm. we built the Japanese military by the invade by Commodore Perry going. And subsequent events along the exactly. way. Exactly. So, you know, we're part of their militarization. And the reason that they got justified the militarization, we don't want to be told what to do by these guys again. Mm-hmm. But they did bring it, and, and, the, and the Japanese nationalists, of course, you're right, right. loved it. Okay, now, you know, they're, they're ascendant in Japan. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we had Japanese exclusion here yeah. uh, in the 20s. Before that, the most critical point is war with Spain, mm-hmm. the Jindup war with Spain. We now know that the main probably wasn't sunk by the, right. the Spanish. Right. Uh, but we, you know, Teddy Roosevelt charges up the hill. We build our empire. Now, war with Spain, we got Cuba and Puerto Rico, but we also took the Guam Philippines. and the Philippines. Right. And the Japanese were righteously angry. They were an empire. We were an empire. Mm-hmm. We basically, this empire came in their backyard and took what they saw as their sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, after we take the Philippines, there's the bloody... Uh, revolt against the Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we crushed it with horrible. Uh, we burned whole villages. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, we were as bad as the Japanese. Uh, well, so, no, I, I, again, as a historian, I wouldn't quite go that far. Well, but, but, if you look at some of the, I forget the general, my friend Greg Jones just did a book. Did you see his book on, uh, about the, about I haven't seen that, but I've interviewed David Silvey, who's also written about the Philippine insurrection, and acknowledges that there were atrocities, that there was violence. Um, it's not a question of debating whose book yeah, is right or yeah, wrong. Yeah, who's, yeah. who's the war? Yeah, yeah. The, you know, yeah. maybe we weren't, by degrees, we weren't as bad as the Japanese, but we were not nice. And grant many, I'll grant that. Many, many died. Uh, and, of course, we prevailed and crushed the rebellion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guam was not, Guam just pretty much, we just fell into our sphere of influence. So we were an imperial power in the Japanese backyard. Yes. And what people forget is, it was supposed to be simultaneous. It was actually 12 hours apart. Bombing of Pearl Harbor, they also bombed Subic mm-hmm. uh, in the Philippines. Oh. Uh, there was a miscommunication. It was bad weather. 12 hours later, they're bombing. Yeah. And Clark Air Force Base. Exactly. Landings follow. They, they wanted the Philippines. 
Right. And and so they thought they would neutralize us, we would be weak, and we wouldn't fight back. Well, it was neutralizing us so that they could make the real grab for the real goodies, which exactly. was the Dutch East Indies because of the American-led oil embargo of 1940. Exactly. And the steel, the steel, right. the whole steel issue. That's, you know, where, that's where the East Avenue L went, actually, was into, yeah. into Japanese battleships. But what's interesting is Senator Beveridge, in 1898, he was, he was against the war with Spain, and he yeah. predicted it. Japan will attack us someday for this. Yes. Um, and it came to pass. So there's a prehistory. Was Japan right? No. But were we absolutely right? Well, we weren't saints either in the history no. of things. So but when you start raising those questions, it it really scares some people. Not just Well, it's the same it's the same response perhaps as some have to the bombing of German cities. Mm-hmm. Was it morally proportionate to the evils the Germans have done. And many will argue it's a moot question. Others will say, well, yes, it's not moral proportionate. Exactly. And, and so, but, there's, but my point is, is, even preceding those questions, is, is why do wars happen? And, and, you know, we weren't saints in the matter, is what I'm saying. We, we sowed some of the seeds and Japan, the military, horrible. I mean, I have no, again, I don't like nationalists of any stripe. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't black and white. It wasn't like, we're the white horse, they're the black horse, and, and, and we, we do no wrong. So, you know, so in history, you have cause and effect. And I think it's good to be aware of that. And then that's why it's important. That's why Dower's book is important. Right. That's why I touched on it a little bit, very little in this book. This book wasn't meant to be an argument. It's not that kind of book, I would argue. Yeah, yeah. You know, take the words from your mouth. It's, it's not that kind of book where there is a room for blame. Or... Right. But I think it's something I, I wanted to contextualize uh, in terms of touching on it and touching on some of the backs, just a little bit of the backstory. And I would do it again. Now, others have also not liked it. But I think as a writer, as a journalist, as a... I try to get at truths mm-hmm. in my work. There is no absolute truth, as you know. But I think if I just cut all that out in the backstory, it's kind of mis- it's missing something. Well, it becomes a collection of wartime horror stories, yeah. really, without that. Yeah. Like I said at the start of the interview, you know, the value for me as a historian is looking at it and saying, okay, this is a thumb in the eye of the greatest generation mythology, not a one, not one that's that's done out of malice, but it's a necessary corrective. Well, it's not a thumb in the eye. I wouldn't go that far. It's a, it's, 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 I think it's a realistic portrayal mm-hmm. of, to our, de- to our detriment, to the danger of our, what we do in the future, when you glamorize any war, yeah. you're treading on, da- on bad ground. And I, not all the guys would agree, but many of the guys would agree with that statement. My dad would agree with that statement. Right. That's why he would always say there are no heroes. Right. Don't make this into something glorious and yeah. grand. It was shit. So anyway, so I, you know, I wasn't, I, I, you know, I, I love the, except for Kennedy, I love these guys, and I have a, a heightened awareness and respect for veterans. Caring for veterans is not a political issue. I don't care if you're left, right, or center. Right. We got to take care of these men and women. Yeah. There's no ifs, ends, or buts about that. And so I take issue with people who, certain people who say I'm anti-veteran. Several conservatives on my Facebook page commented about. Your book's not anti-veteran. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite. Yeah. This is pro-veteran. This is pro-human. Uh, 
It's a pro-human book. Yeah. Well, it's a very humanistic book, I think. And, and some may disagree with that description. But you're taking, you know, this is the crucible of, of abject horror. I mean, this is the ninth, I mean, the eighth, seventh, eighth, ninth centuries of hell. Yeah. And you're taking people who had been through this crucible and giving them a chance to open up and, you know, really just you know, heal their souls. Yes. That's, that's really, that was my goal. That you asked earlier about, it went from Willig into something else. It became that group therapy session. Yeah. I discovered as much about myself as I hope in talking to them that some of these folks, both the men and their children, discovered about themselves. It was a journey for all of us. I, except for Kennedy, I don't write about people I don't like. Yeah. There's some people who aren't in the book. Does he become a straw man then? I think he, I needed to put him in there because... He represents many things, mm-hmm. the psychopath, that dark side, that maybe he's a strong man. But I like, you know, the people I wrote about in this book, I feel something important to say yeah. to the world, yeah. not just to me. And there's some people I didn't put in the book, not that I didn't like them, I didn't trust them, or I don't, you know, they weren't quite open enough. Yeah. Or, so I, I try to, you know, pick people, and all my books are like that. I pick people I like. Uh, I don't write from mallet, hate. I write from love uh, in all my work. Uh, I guess I'm a humanist. Um, so that's why anybody who, you know, people will challenge me on the politics, which is I don't think are in there. But to say I'm anti-veteran or, or to dismiss the human story. Some people or, or call you an apologist. Maybe. Exactly. Yeah. War's human. Yeah. And I'll never apologize for that, caring for people. You end with Okinawa. And there's so much to ask there, but we are we are running running down here. I, I don't know if even those who read the book can quite understand just how important that was. What was really behind going to Okinawa? It's not just about returning to the past. No, no, it's I call it the island of ghosts. Mm-hmm. Going to Okinawa uh, and seeing it today, seeing where these things had happened was illuminating in so many ways. Um, Mr. Yamada, mm-hmm. the most amazing man. He was, you know, there weren't, there weren't many Japanese survivors. Uh, no. no. <laughs> 110,000 Japanese soldiers, 7,000 lived through the battle. Yeah. And most of them are dead. But I found Mr. Yamada, who was one of the boy soldiers, the, the Kino, Kino Tai, and he was like 14 when they drafted. Right. And... Since 19, he came back to the island in 1954, he was a prisoner of war, and he went through just absolute horror, as anybody in the island did. No one on the island didn't go through horror. Mm-hmm. And he comes back, and his friend Tatsuo, who's, he was carrying wounded uh, uh, at the bottom of the island, he set him down, mm-hmm. and then he fled to a cave. And he, since 1954, he'd go into where he set the body down, uh, and twice a week in recent years, there's a trail in the jungle. I, when I first went with him, I thought, oh, it's some hiking trail for tourists. Yeah. And it dead ends in this jungle at this coral outcrop, outcrop and he praised Tatsuo, his friend, twice a week since 1954. And he's living with the war. And just his take, and he didn't want to question either. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Americans and the Japanese have a lot in common in a lot of ways. You know, I started asking about battle strategy. Why, what, the, what the Japanese generals did to them? They were they were horrible. The yeah. the, the Japanese uh, uh, 
or generals and brass. And he, he didn't want to go there. He's talking to other people. Yeah. Talk to, uh, he, he got all flustered and nervous. Right. So I got to see, he didn't, he didn't want to go to war. And I got to other soldiers that I, Japanese soldiers I, I talked to. So I got their perspective. I went to Sugarloaf Hill, which is now, they're trying to forget the war. They put a water tower on top of it. It's, there's a little plaque. It's, and Joe Lanciati had told me during the battle, he said, I know there'll be a parking lot for a shopping center where we were fighting someday. Hmm. So I'm standing on Sugarloaf Hill. There's a picture in the book. There's a Prada and Dior on the side of a shopping mall hmm. right where <laughs> 6,000 guys died. Yeah. Uh, it just shows the stupidity of war. Uh, and so seeing that, seeing, I, I, I'm just giving you snapshots of just the impressions Going to uh, Hill 69, not far from where General Bruckner was killed. And there's, I climbed, this is the last battle my the dad's come. My dad wasn't there for sure. Right, right. But, but Fenton Grainer, that's where Fenton Grainer was shot in the face by a Japanese sniper. And I crawled through the jungle to the top of this hill, which is all overgrown now. And there's a, the main Japanese cave defense, there's the cave. I lowered myself into it. I had a headlamp. And I find... That's a hazard just in itself. Oh, there's these dangerous, these habu snakes that will one bite your dad. Oh, snakes, unexploded ordnance, God knows what else. God knows yeah. what else, but I had to go into this cave. So I crawl into this cave, and it's all blown up. You could tell that munitions have blown up in there. Mm-hmm. There's rotting soles of Japanese shoes, and there's American grenade fragments. Still there 67 years later. I took a picture, and I put them back. And yeah. uh, those grenades probably were thrown by L Company guys, right? Guys from my dad's company. Ed, Ed Hoppin uh, uh, probably could have thrown that grenade. So I'm holding this stuff. So, you know, and, and I'm just, I'm just, and I went to the tomb where Mr. Mulligan died. Uh, still blown out. Part of it's still blown out. And I won't get into the, the spiritual stuff that happened there, but it was intense. So it was a very, it was psychologically for me, it was, on many levels, understanding that war, I had to see that island. Do you think that ultimately, as, as we remember it, I'm going to get esoteric here. No. Our memories of war do become ghost stories. Oh, yeah. In all cases. I think so. I mean, not like, you know, the, the, the classic, you know, the dead of Gettysburg marching, but we're, we're living through experiences of death. We're remembering death. The specters never leave us. The dads come home, in the World War II case, they raise their kids. The war is overt and it overtly, uh, uh, when they have their raging fits, I keep hearing from all these kids yeah. that we, have, we all have the same father. Uh, yeah. The PTSD, the memories, the suppression of horror, what it did to our families. So, yeah, those ghosts, those ghosts, they, they travel, they yeah. stay for a long time. Every war. Not just World War II. It really is a transformative story, and it's not transformative in the sense of a rite of passage. It's the end of a page. It's the end of youth, the end of, of innocence, to some extent. Every guy and kids who knew their fathers best talked, not just poetically, but that's what, that's what we talked about. Yeah. Dale, I want to thank for the chance to talk about bringing Mulligan home. You know, this has really, you know, been a special interview. And uh, it's, it's a book I recommend, and I, want, I hope 
the others will be driven to read it. Thank you so much. It was a, it's just a hard one to talk about. At some point, I'm going to stop talking about it because it is so personal. It's not sure. like a book I'm going to talk about a hundred times. Yeah. So I'm, just, I'm glad to have shared it with you, and, and, and I hope your listeners uh, uh, makes them think about war, makes them think about some of these issues. I hope so. On behalf of New Books in Military History, this is Bob Wintermere signing off. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to our interview with Dale Meharich, the author of Bringing My Luggage Home, The Other Side of the Good War. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Thank you for listening.